Well, that was, that was beautiful. Thank you, worship team. Um, but I'm feeling a little guilty uh, now because uh, I admit that earlier this week I thought maybe it's time or even it's about time we asked the maintenance committee to go nuclear on the crickets. <laughs> what kind of a church has crickets in the choir, right? Anyway, I think I might need another prayer of confession after you, the way you led us into that song, Justin. Good morning. My name is Alex, and I serve as lead pastor here at Courtright. This morning, we are continuing with our new sermon series on the Apostles' Creed. And we're moving on to the part of the creed at the very beginning, which refers to God as the maker of heaven and earth. So you'll see the creed on the screen in a moment. We haven't said it together yet as part of this series, but we will be in later weeks. I wanted in the early stages of the series us just to have a chance to read it. Last week we had it read for us. And so we start the creed with, I believe in God the Father Almighty, creator of heaven and earth. And it's that second clause that we're looking at today. We're going to see how the biblical doctrine of creation, what the Bible teaches about God's relationship to creation, makes, can make an amazing difference in how we see ourselves, in how we understand our purpose in the world, and in how we view the reality and power behind the whole universe. So let's pray before we open God's word. Holy Spirit, we ask you to come among us and to be our teacher today, that you would take these words that we're going to read, which could just be words, and make them come alive, captivate us with the beauty of who you are, Lord Jesus. Amen. So we're starting at the very beginning in Genesis 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. And God said, let there be light. And there was light. God saw that the light was good, and he separated the light from the darkness. God called the light day, and the darkness he called night. And there was evening, and there was morning the first day. And then we'll skip ahead. Then God said, let us make mankind in our image, in our likeness, so that they may rule over the fish in the sea, and the birds in the sky, over the livestock and all the wild animals, and over all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image. In the image of God, he created them. Male and female, he created them. God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful and increase in number. Fill the earth and subdue it. Rule over the fish and the sea and the birds in the sky and over every living creature that moves on the ground. Then God said, I give you every seed-bearing plant on the face of the whole earth and every tree that has fruit with seed in it. They will be yours for food. And to all the beasts of the earth and all the birds in the sky and all the creatures that move along the ground, everything that has the breath of life in it, I give every green plant for food. And it was so. 
God saw all that he had made, and it was very good. And there was evening, and there was morning, the sixth day. Thus the heavens and the earth were completed in all their vast array. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing, so on the seventh day, he rested from all his work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy, because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. And from Colossians chapter 1, the Son, and that is Jesus, the Son is the image of the invisible God, the firstborn over all creation. For in him all things were created, things in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or powers or rulers or authorities. All things have been created through him and for him. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed on the cross. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. So in just under three months, something is going to happen that my daughter Chloe and I have been looking forward to for a very long time. Avatar 2 is coming out. It has been more than 10 years since the first Avatar movie when James Cameron topped the record he himself had set with Titanic by eventually earning somewhere around $2.5 billion at the box office with Avatar. When Avatar came out, I remember people raved about it, and they especially loved the special effects. It was the first really 3D movie, and I remember people friends of mine going to it and coming back just amazed, like there was this whole new world that was technology was going to create for us. In its story, Avatar also created a new world on the planet Pandora. There were exotic plants, strange animals, a new race of people. But Avatar wasn't just great special effects. It had a message. It said we should defend our world against those whose greed would lead them to exploit it with no concern for the consequences. We should take care of nature, basically, was the message. So Avatar preached a sermon, a sermon about the environment. Today we're going to explore a Christian view of the environment, but it's, it's even bigger than that. We're going to consider the biblical doctrine. Doctrine means teaching. It's something solid we stand on. We're going to explore the biblical doctrine of creation in three parts. First of all, we'll look at the goodness of creation, God's creation reflects his goodness, and it is good as he is good. Secondly, we'll look at its purpose, the purpose of creation. Is it just there, or is it there for something? And so God calls us to realize our design and our purpose, and to find satisfaction and fulfillment in that. And thirdly, we'll look at the limits of creation. God is much more than his creation. So first, it's goodness, second, it's purpose, and third, it's limits. So the opening few chapters of the Bible answer the question, why for us? We have lots of other questions about the world, where it comes from, when, how, but the question why 
is what we have answered here. So why did God create the world? For his own glory and to share his glory with others. Because he's good and he wants to share his goodness. And so God's love overflows into all of creation. If you read the whole chapter of Genesis 1, six times we have the statement, it was good, repeated. The goodness is overwhelmingly emphasized. But Christians haven't always seen the physical world as good. For the Greeks and the Romans, at the time when the New Testament was written, the physical was bad, and only the spiritual was good. And this is a view that has influenced the church down through the centuries as well. I'm going to call it legalism this morning. So for legalists, physical pleasure was guilty until proven innocent. You can think of Lent. Some of you might come from a church background, if you come from a church background, which celebrates Lent annually. And I think Lent is most famous for being a season when we give up things like chocolate or alcohol. But the Bible presents self-denial as only a means to an end, and the end is the worship of God. It's too bad that self-denial has sometimes become the goal in itself, because that was never the intention. You see, when people try to figure out what God wants them to do, sometimes they fall into a trap. So you might ask yourself, what is God's will for my life? Well, I have at times had conversations with people where it seems like they're assuming that God's will must be the choice that's most painful, that's most difficult, the one I don't want to do, the one that's going to make me miserable. And sometimes we impose that view on others, right? We think something that we value is most spiritual and what they're valuing is worldly, is not legitimate. And we're wrong to think that way. We have this warped view of God at times. The truth is that God loves the earth because he made it good. Scripture shows us God with his hands in the dirt, in the physical world, from the very beginning. God made us to have bodies as well. He made us in his image, which is good. And then, if we leap forward into the New Testament, the New Covenant, God sends his Son into the world, and the Word, the same Word that created the whole universe, became flesh and came close to us in Jesus. God is so committed to the physical world that he entered it. Even heaven will be physical. We are going to dance and run and never grow weary. After the resurrection, we see that Jesus didn't float around like a ghost. No, he had a body. He ate a fish. God created heaven and earth, and they were good. The second thing about God's creation is that it is purposeful. It's designed. There's an order to God's creation that comes through in the sequence of Genesis 1. And if you're a Christian scientist here today or aspire to be one, you know about this order, right? And we celebrate that in the study of science. We see God separating light from darkness, animals from humans. Humans are divided into male and female. Order comes out of chaos. But 
a view that we find prevalent in our culture, a view I'll call secular materialism this morning, says that we're an accident, a pure accident, that we're the result of random natural forces, that there is no divine design to our existence. Genesis 1 and 2 say something quite different. And in those chapters, we also have the hope of rest. On the seventh day, God rested. So our purpose, part of our purpose is to work well. And later, if you read on in Genesis 2, you'll see that God put human beings in the garden to tend it and watch over it. Our purpose is to serve God by growing good things for him and then to receive his blessing and his rest from our labor. We'll talk about that a little more later. What would you say your purpose is today? If somebody put you on the spot and you could not escape, do you have a personal mission statement? Could you sum it up in one or two or even three sentences? It's worth thinking about. We're doing that as a church right now as we vision for the future. Frederick Buchner died a few weeks ago. He was one of my favorites. He was one of the great Christian poets and storytellers of the last hundred years. One of my favorite lines that he wrote is this. He said, God calls you to the place where your deep gladness and the world's deep hunger meet. Which means that your calling lies at the intersection between the real needs of people in the world and what you enjoy, what you're gifted for. We are made in God's image. Like God, we are creative, and our creativity overflows in all kinds of ways, but its destination is love. Its intent is love. When sin entered the world, God called us to get involved in restoration and rebuilding and putting the world right. That really is our big picture purpose as Christians. And for you individually, you will only know true freedom when you find that purpose for which God created you and as you realize it. And that's not simple. That takes a lifetime. It's also best done in the community of the church with the encouragement of friends who are also believers in Jesus. So creation is good. Creation is purposeful. Creation also has its limits. It cannot satisfy us, ultimately. The Bible says the creation points to the creator, but when you stop with created things, that's where your heart is going to rest. You may get a lot of pleasure out of food and out of music, out of love and romance, out of sports and the outdoors, out of relationships, out of family, out of your work, your studies. But if you don't find the creator behind the created, these pleasures will disappoint you in the end. They will not be enough. They will let you down eventually. C.S. Lewis was a Christian who embraced the pleasures of life. He writes evocatively in a sermon he once delivered in Oxford that was later published as an essay, The Weight of Glory. This is probably 
my favorite C.S. Lewis quote of all time. I know I've given you a lot over the years, but he says that the books or the music, and you can insert there whatever it is you love, the books or the music, those things in which we thought that beauty was located will betray us if we trust in them. It was not in them. The beauty was not in them. It only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they're mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshipers. For they are not the thing itself. They are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. Don't you love that? The scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have never yet visited. When we let the beauty of creation wake us up from our everyday cynicism, from the grind of our work, the things we must do, we feel such a longing for something more. And so the Holy Spirit uses creation to help us, to point us to God. You heard it in our call to worship. Psalm 19 says that the heavens declare the glory of God. The skies proclaim the work of his hands. Day after day, they pour forth speech. Night after night, they reveal knowledge. The world is beautiful, but only a personal God who is speaking to us, who wants to be in relationship with us, can truly, fully, deeply satisfy us. So we've already seen a couple of possible wrong turns or dead ends. Legalism, for one thing, can keep us from embracing the goodness of God's creation, the pleasure that, we, that God wants us to enjoy. Materialism, on the other hand, can leave us doubting that God really calls us and has a purpose for us. And a third temptation comes when we don't recognize the limits of creation, when we don't look for the creator behind the created things. And in that case, we can end up worshiping nature. To come back to the movie Avatar, it presents us with a worldview like that. Some of you might know the story. Humans have landed on the planet Pandora, and they're after its natural resources. But the indigenous Navi people stand in their way. The Navi worship Ewa, and they commune with her through sacred trees. On, on Pandora, everything is connected through nature. The Navi worship their earth. Their world is their god. It's a powerful message of caring for the world and not destroying it. And I think it's familiar to us in our culture as well. It has a lot going for it, but it's not the Christian view of the world. In the Bible, God created the universe, but he is apart from it. He is beyond it. In his book on the Apostles' Creed, Michael Byrd sums this up. He says, when we confess that God is creator of heaven and earth, we are saying that God is distinct from creation. God is sovereign over creation. And you can see the way this moves through Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, right? 
God is distinct from creation. God is sovereign over creation. That we would usually characterize as being part of God the Father's character. God loves his creation. God is concerned with creation. Jesus enters the world and embodies that love. And then God remains active in creation as the Holy Spirit, sustaining life. If you believe the biblical doctrine of creation, you aren't going to exploit creation like a secularist, a materialist might. You aren't going to fear it or hate it like a legalist might. But you don't worship it either. So what do you do? Well, I'd say you're committed to it. If more Christians lived faithfully in creation, we'd enjoy it more, for one thing. We're often so busy running around that we don't take the time to see each other or to enjoy the good gifts that God has given us. There's a tangible difference between driving to a place and walking to a place, right? We know this for a fact. If you walked here this morning, I'm willing to bet that you have more peace than if you drove here. I know because I drove here. And it's possible I was waiting in the car for my family. Because <sighs> last week, the photocopier jammed twice. Okay. Slow down. Can we do that in our culture that values speed, efficiency, productivity? Last week, we talked about the Christian practice of quiet time, and we associated it with the opening words of the creed, that believing in God the Father Almighty leads us to want to spend time with him, listening to his word, reading scripture, and opening ourselves to him in prayer. And we do that on a daily basis, best of all, I think. This week, believing in God as creator of heaven and earth could lead us to keep Sabbath, to the discipline of Sabbath-keeping. We get this English word Sabbath from the Hebrew word Shabbat, which literally means to stop, to cease, to desist. And we read earlier, right? On the seventh day, God rested from all his work. Are you tired of some things in your life right now? Maybe you're still languishing as we trust we're coming out of this pandemic. Would you say that you need more and better rest in your life? Well, I'm willing to bet that you would. Jesus says, come to me and I will give you rest. Rest is at the heart of the good news of who I am and what I've done. But it's more than taking a day off each week. Tim Keller writes in what is by far the best definition of Sabbath I've ever come across. The purpose of Sabbath is not simply to rejuvenate yourself in order to be more productive, nor is it the pursuit of pleasure. The purpose of Sabbath is to enjoy God, to enjoy your life in general, and to enjoy what you've accomplished in this world through his help, and the freedom you have in the gospel, the freedom from slavery to any material object or human expectation. The Sabbath is a sign of hope we have in the world to come. One way we do that in my family is by practicing something we call digital Sabbath. 
There was a meeting of our Sweet Mamas group yesterday. I think there were about 15 young mums gathered together for uh, just building relationships and good times. And I want to encourage you, whether you're at that stage of life, especially if you're at that stage of life, but whatever your circumstances, to ponder how you could keep Sabbath. And, and if you are, um, if you do have kids, this is a book by Andy Crouch entitled The TechWise Family, Everyday Steps for Putting Technology in Its Proper Place. This is an outstanding book. I encourage you to read it. I don't know if we have a copy in our library, but if we don't, we will soon. And uh, you can talk to me if you'd like to borrow my copy of it. Andy Crouch is actually, I think, one of the best leaders in the Christian world today when it comes to practicing the creation mandate, the cultural mandate that we see in Genesis 2. His book, Culture Making, is something I'd also highly recommend to you if you want to better understand this question of vocation. Who are we as Christians in the world? How can we pursue what God wants us to pursue? However you keep Sabbath, let me commission you, Courtright, this morning to set aside time to enjoy God later today or later this week. You won't regret it. So if you believe in the creation doctrine, not only will you enjoy creation, but you're going to want to restore it too. And we've talked about that a number of times already, but I love the way, again, that C.S. Lewis puts this. He says that a lot of people in our world, when confronted with sickness or with a slum, will say that disease and poverty are part of life. According to C.S. Lewis, the best Christian reply to that is don't talk nonsense. He continues, Christianity is a fighting religion. It thinks God made the world that space and time, heat and cold, and all the colors and tastes, and all the animals and vegetables are things that God made up out of his head as a man makes up a story. But Christianity also thinks that a great many things have gone wrong in the world that God made and that God insists and insists very loudly on our putting them right again. So part of this is creation care, that we're called to rule over the earth as God's stewards, which means we represent his authority and also his love and nurture. And that would be a whole other sermon. In fact, it almost was. But then I realized you would want to get home for lunch at some point. But this mandate to put things right in the world is the heart of the church's mission. It springs from the prayer that Jesus taught us to pray. May your kingdom come. May your will be done here in Guelph as it is in heaven. God is so committed to creation that he sent his son that he would enter it and suffer for it. And if we don't get mad at what is wrong with the world, if we don't get angry at suffering and injustice, at disease and poverty, we're not committed. We're not committed to Jesus. The world is broken, and we are too. And God wants to fix the world. Are we willing to obey him? In Colossians, Paul points to Jesus as the source of creation, as the only possible way back to the restored and abundant good life that God intended for us. He says, In him all things were created, and in him all things hold together. For God was pleased to have all his fullness dwell in him, 
and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether things on earth or things in heaven, by making peace through his blood shed at the cross. So Jesus made the ultimate sacrifice. Jesus gave up his life so that we could be restored. And until you see that God is not just the creator in general, but that Jesus was willing to die to be uncreated, if you want to think of it that way, so that you could be recreated, a new creation. Until you see God that way, you won't be able to rest in his provision. You won't receive the gift of faith he wants you to have. Let me finish by coming back to God's goodness, which is at the heart of all of this. On Thursday night, I, I had moderated the session meeting at Duff's Church, where I'm interim moderator right now, and, and uh, on, the, on the way back um, to Guelph, I dropped by the church to pick up a box of vegetables that the leaders of our garden ministry had harvested for Diane Boyd and her family. If you're on the KPC prayer chain, you'll know that Diane was diagnosed recently with ovarian cancer and is 10 days into her first round of chemo. So her husband Rob and I had a chance to talk, and I prayed for him and for Diane and for the kids. And as I was driving home, I reflected on the huge difference it makes when we believe that at the heart of the universe, there is a God who loves us. Having cancer, having health issues of all kinds, all the other challenges we face in our lives can easily leave us feeling alone and tempted to despair. And so we need faith. We need faith that in spite of the fall in Genesis 3, in spite of the brokenness of our world and of ourselves, in spite of the existence of terrible things like cancer, we need the faith that God never intended for us to experience that. That he created the world good. And his design for us and the whole world was to enjoy that goodness, to be in communion with him. And when we believe that, it changes everything. If you're someone who hasn't fully given yourself to God, if you haven't said, look, Lord, I can't get through this on my own, and you alone are the one who can give me what I need to face the hardest things. You alone are the one whose love endures forever. You alone are the one who has overcome death and sin and forgiven us and made it possible for us to come home to you. If you haven't prayed like that, if you haven't believed that, then I want to encourage you to ask God as Father Almighty and creator of heaven and earth, ask him to give you that faith. Sometime today, pray that in the stillness of your own room. And if you're already someone who can say, I believe, I believe in what the creed lays out, I want to ask, have you accepted Jesus into your life as your creator? It's one thing to accept him as your savior, but to believe in Jesus as creator of heaven and earth is to recognize that the earth is good, that there's a purpose to it and to our lives, and that creation has its limits. To believe in God as creator is to follow him into the world, is to be committed to the world, to fight injustice, 
to be active in seeking the restoration of what was lost, to rest in Christ, and to be filled with the joy and peace of the Holy Spirit. Let's pray. Dear God, we thank you that you are a good God. We see your goodness in creation, and we know and we trust that you want the best for us. Thank you for making us stewards of this world in all its beauty. And thank you for inviting us to join with all of creation, even the crickets, in praising you. We thank you for the purpose you've given us to glorify you and enjoy you forever with our whole selves, in our work, in our rest, in our play, in all things. And so we pray all of this in the name of Jesus Christ, in whom everything holds together. Amen. Some of you know Diane Boyd and the Boyd family. Um, Diane was called uh, to be a minister of Word and Sacrament a couple years ago and, and uh, moved on to Rockwood Church where she serves as their pastor. Uh, some of you don't know her, but if you'd like to be part of supporting them, um, we are making meals for them. So you could talk to me or you could be in touch with Colleen Outerbridge, our new meal ministry coordinator. And uh, let's, let's keep them in our prayers as we will later in the service.